Disclaimer. In this chapter, we will be discussing the murder of a 15-year-old girl and three additional adult women. The details may be triggering for some listeners. Everything discussed unless released by law enforcement should be considered speculation. This will be the only warning. Please do not listen if you are sensitive to this topic. Hello, everyone. Um, The case that I'm covering this week um, is a little bit close to home for us, uh, where we live. This like Alberta close or Canada close? Uh, BC close. Ooh. Mm-hmm. So one province over, which is close, close. <laughs> and we're approximately, technically, two hours from the BC border where we live. Oh, yeah. Um, we're very close to what's known as the Highway of Tears um, that runs through the Yellowhead Highway from Alberta actually into BC. Um, this case isn't directly related, but there is some correlation because of the area that these girls went missing from. Um, so let's just get right into it. I, I believe that you've never heard of this case either. So No, I haven't. I'm very excited to hear about which it. Which is very surprising to me because he is very close to your age. Mm-hmm. Um, like, right, like currently or he was close currently. to my yeah. I mean, maybe I've heard of it, but I'm really super bad with names. But um, mm-hmm. as of right now, I have no idea where we're going. Okay. Jill Stacy Tashenko, who is 35 when she disappeared, um, is the first victim we're going to talk about. It is hard to find information on her life and upbringing. Unfortunately, the press seems to give the offenders the spotlight and certain types of victims barely get mentioned. Um, I get that it is because of their lifestyle, but you know this as a journalist. You can dig and find information, and it would be nice to hear about Jill's childhood, maybe give her some of the attention for once as a journalist. Totally, and I mean, I have no idea what's going on yet. Um. (laughs) But you can't find information on this woman because she's like a sex worker who's addicted to drugs, and so there's nothing on her family history on the internet like no news stories when she went missing they didn't say oh she's from here this is how she was raised she was in foster care blah 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 she's addicted to drugs and she got murdered is basically when did this happen like 2009 i want to say 2009 is very 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 different from 2021 i'd say sex workers are real workers and that is something that most people especially media believe now and so this has already been something that people have come very far on and i hope continue to come even further on but that is a very good point that this is obviously a few years a lot of years back yeah Mm -hmm. so jill was described by family during a victim impact statement at trial as happy and bubbly and she dreamed of being a famous singer Jill was reported missing in Prince George by friends and family on October 22, 2009. They hadn't seen her for up to four weeks and had started distributing posters in the community. Prince George RCMP released a public appeal for information about her whereabouts later that day. Her body was found on October 28, 2009 in an area on the northwest outskirts of the city. Police say she had likely been there for seven to ten days. Jill had six children, all of whom were in foster care, and she worked as an escort for several years and sadly was well known to police in the area because of her drug use, but she was well liked. Um, She was a very pretty girl. She was not really hard. She was really nice to talk to. Pathology results from an autopsy showed that Jill did not die of natural causes. 
The area her body was found is well known for hiking and bush parties, although the colder weather keeps people away in the late fall and winter. A passing hiker discovered her remains. Wow. Yeah. Um, Natasha Lynn Montgomery was 23 years old when she was last seen alive in Prince George, B.C. in August of 2010. When she disappeared, her family was immediately worried as she was known to live a high-risk lifestyle and did not try to contact her two children. Brian Godwin, the father of Natasha's children, said he knew her since she was about 12 years old and they began dating by the time she was 17 or 18 and he was about 20. He said that they had been living together in Quinell, B.C., where they were the parents of two children for four or five years when she started to develop a serious drug problem centered on crack cocaine and the relationship subsequently fell apart. However, Mm -hmm. Natasha stayed in close contact with her children and usually called them every second day. Her ex-boyfriend, Brian, had said she loved them more than anything in the world. Sad. It is. So at some point, Natasha was in jail for prostitution. So about a week after her release, Natasha called Brian and said that she wanted to be back home in Quinnell. But because she couldn't get a ride, Brian actually wired her enough money to pay for the bus ticket. He said she was crying on the phone and that she really wanted to come home and see the kids. Mm. Sad. Sad so far because I'm guessing I know where Natasha Mm. Oh yeah, and then in the meantime, Natasha's friend took her to a house party where her boyfriend lived. So the friend's boyfriend. The friend's boyfriend. Okay. The boyfriend's name was Cody Lejabakov. So this happened during a summer afternoon, but the woman could not remember what day of what month. The woman? Yeah, like Cody Lejabakov's girlfriend, Natasha's friend. Okay. She couldn't remember what day of what month she just knew it was the summertime and it was the afternoon Um, they were doing heavy and hard drugs a lot during this time she said so the boyfriend cody took them in his truck to a spot just east of prince george correctional center where he and this girlfriend natasha's friend liked to go so she could let her dog run they drove down a hill took her right and stopped at an old mill before the train tracks They pulled down the tailgate, and while the girls consumed crack and crystal meth, Cody had a few drinks. The woman said she remembered it was summer because it was hot out, and Natasha had shaved her head. When they ran out of drugs, they drove back into town where Natasha was dropped off at a drug house on Quincy Street, and the friend, or Cody's girlfriend, was dropped off at a nearby convenience store. Uh, This is the last account of seeing Natasha alive. So Natasha's body has never been found, but DNA was later found 32 times in Cody Lejabakov's apartment on items including clothing, bedsheets, and an axe. Wow. So she went missing and they found... They didn't at first, obviously, but when... Because he's a serial killer? or Yeah. Yes. Okay. And so eventually when they do catch him, her DNA matches to that stuff. And they've never been able to get him to... No. Tell them? Mm-hmm. What the fuck? That's crazy. Yeah. So we'll move on to the next missing and murdered person. Cynthia Frances Mass was last seen on September 10th, 2010. Her body was found in a Prince George Park the following month. She died of blunt force trauma to the head and penetrating wounds. She had a hole in her shoulder blade, a broken jaw and cheekbone, and injuries to her neck consistent with someone stomping on it. Wow. 
Her body was found two weeks later in a remote area that was frequented by sex trade workers. Something that, like, makes me wonder already is that if they didn't find that one body, why didn't he just do whatever he did with that body with all the other bodies? And, like, what is it? Yeah. Why can't it be found? Like, that's wait till a you hear about how he got caught. Oh, God, okay. Mm-hmm. So Cynthia's DNA was also found in nine places on a pickaxe inside Cody Lidabakov's apartment. And, of course, this is later after the arrest. So Cynthia's family released a statement saying, Our family has come forward publicly to speak on behalf of Cindy and the importance of recognizing who she was as a person and to highlight the urgency to ensure safety for all women in our society. Cindy had a right to live to overcome her struggles, to become strong, and to be the mother she wanted to be. Sad. The programs in Prince George available for struggling people are what brought Cindy to Prince George for help. Cindy was a social victim of disability, ethnicity, class, gender, as well as suffering the greatest indignity as a victim of murder. She is a poster child for the vulnerability in our society. We would like Canada to strengthen the human rights of women, to provide policies and legislation which protect the vulnerable in our society. We are asking those in leadership to increase the funding for victims of violence, mental health, and addictions. Our family would like journalists to please refrain from highlighting gender and lifestyle descriptions as it numbs public empathy and detracts from focusing on the brutal murder. In essence, it does not help to prevent further injustices against women. We are concerned about all other unsolved missing and murdered women. Murders do not just harm families, but our society is harmed as we forget or numbed by the senseless violence perpetrated against women, portrayed as deserving of death. Now, I bring this in because people started to believe that these women, they just kind of threw them in with the missing and murdered, the highway of tears um, murders. I get into tiny little bit. That case is huge. You want, like my episodes are long. If we cover the Highway of Tears, um, that is so long because it's so long standing, and probably not only one perpetrator, but there are a lot of missing and murdered women, um, and the majority of them are Indigenous. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I wanted to bring that in because the family was convinced that she was just another one of the Highway of Tears victims. Mm-hmm. at the time so let's move on though to the murder of lauren dawn leslie lauren lived with her mother in vanderhoof british columbia she was a teenager 15 years old and was described as a fun and happy kid but someone who lived with post-traumatic depression and bipolar disorder for which she had been taken medication lauren was also legally partially blind having around 50 percent vision in one eye and none in the other wow According to her loved ones, she had dreams of becoming a forensic pathologist when she grew up. On the evening of November 27, 2010, an RCMP officer was sitting in the back roads in his cruiser near Vanderhoof, B.C., when they noticed a vehicle speeding out of a remote logging road. This was especially odd because the area was known to be quiet, especially at 9.45 p.m. There was no reason for a truck to be speeding so quickly. So following a hunch, the officer pulled the truck over in a routine traffic stop. 
but what happened next was nothing close to routine as the driver was 20-year-old Cody Lijabakov. In any other situation, Cody probably would have been let off with a warning for speeding, except for one thing. When the officer approached the truck, they saw what looked like a smear of blood on Cody's face. But that's not all. There was also blood on Cody's legs and what looked like a pool of blood inside the truck. So they literally like in the bed of the truck, I should say, and then in the passenger seat as well. In the middle of they caught him in the middle of something. Right. Right. In Canada, protection against unlawful search and seizure prohibits arbitrary vehicle searches by police. If the police search your car without a warrant or permission or a valid reason, they are violating your constitutional rights. Isn't a good enough reason in this case the fact that there's blood everywhere? So, however, there are some situations in which police can search your car without a warrant or your consent. And this is where finding blood on the person and in the truck might be suspicious. And um, basically, police have to believe that there is evidence of a crime um, Mm -hmm. in plain sight or that they're basically saving a life or the potentially saving a life by doing that search. yeah a pool of blood is enough just as if you had like a right so this bong is on your seat they're gonna search your stuff right so because of that information this search was basically exempt from the search and seizure requirements um being that seeing the blood on cody and inside the truck the officer called for backup And he was joined by a second officer shortly thereafter. Together, they searched the truck where they also found tools that looked like they were covered in blood. But here's the thing. Um, Cody immediately told the officers when it happened that he had a perfectly reasonable, yet illegal, explanation for the blood and his speeding away. Cody said that he had just been poaching and killed a deer by clubbing it to death. He was speeding away from the crime when he was pulled over. When officers asked him why he would club a deer to death, and he reportedly said, I'm a redneck, and that's what we do for fun. And I'd like to say, I'm also a redneck, and that is not what we do for fun. We know rednecks who would definitely beat something with a stick. I don't think that. I don't think that. I don't think that. You dated one for many years. (laughs) Okay, anyways, let's move on, because whatever. (laughs) Unsurprisingly, Cody was arrested under the Canada Wildlife Act for poaching But something was missing. There was no deer carcass in Cody's truck, as one would expect with a poacher, because that was the whole point, wasn't it? Um, If you're going to kill an animal, usually like even rednecks, they take the animals with them for food. So where was the deer? A conservation officer with experience tracking animals is called in to find the deer while Cody is taken into custody. The officer began tracing the tire tracks of Cody's truck back up the remote side road and then there in the fresh snow where he found footprints and as he followed those tracks he expected to find the body of a deer but instead he stumbled upon something he never expected to see. Partially buried in a gravel pit was the body of a young woman. Her pants had been pulled down to her ankles and she appeared to have injuries to her head. She was already dead by the time the officer found her. Because it would have been, like, recent, right? Very recent. Like, he had killed her, and then it wasn't far up the logging road. Wow. Yeah. So the body was that of 15-year-old Lauren Dawn Leslie. 
Um, as I said before, she was legally blind. She didn't have any vision in one of her eyes and only about 50% in the other. Uh, Lauren's body was near a highway in Canada um, known as the Highway of Tears, like I said before. The area is notorious for young women going missing or being killed. It involves the unsolved abductions and murders of well over 80 girls and women um, that span a 700-kilometer stretch of highway. It's a hugely important case, but it is a big one and will take some time to gather factual information, but it's definitely on the list of stories to cover here. So following an autopsy, it was confirmed that Lauren died from blunt force trauma to her head and blood loss from her If there was any doubt about why Cody had been fleeing from the area of Lauren's body, investigators reportedly found a monkey backpack inside his truck, as well as a wallet with the children's hospital card that had the name Lauren Leslie on it, glasses that belonged to Lauren, Lauren's phone, and a ring her father made for her with all the birthstones of her family. Aww. At first, Cody explained that he found Lauren by accident already dead while he was out poaching in the woods, but this wasn't true, obviously. Police checked his phone and realized that not only had they known each other before he found her body, but that Lauren and Cody had exchanged text messages back and forth planning to meet up that very night. Um, social media site Nexopia is where Cody messaged Lauren first. Nexopia. Nexopia? Like, I don't know what this is. What is this? Um, so Nexopia was kind of the site that was popping, popping when we were <laughs> a little younger, for sure. You were never on it. The look she's given me. She was also younger than me. Okay. It was almost like... like how old were you? So it would have been closer to my sister's kind of thing, but I definitely had one. Um, I would have been probably 10 or 11. Okay. And it was almost like MySpace, but not interesting so nexopia is that have to wait nexopia nexopia is where cody messaged lauren first and after chatting for a bit they exchanged phone numbers before they agreed to meet in person that evening before meeting lauren cody bought a four pack of kalua mudslides and a four pack of white russians and a pack of cigarettes keep in mind that lauren was 15 and was not legal for her to drink alcohol Providing alcohol to a minor is typically punished as a misdemeanor offense. However, the crime may be considered a felony depending on the circumstances of the case. Presented with that information, Cody changed the story, admitting that they had hung out together. He claimed that they were engaged in what he described as consensual intercourse, which is a common misconception about consent. Um, with Lauren being a minor and Cody an adult, this could not be consensual. Adults cannot have sexual contact with a minor, even if the minor wants it or says, okay, it's not okay. It is illegal. And disgusting. Totally. But their text messages also contradicted Cody's story just before they actually met. Cody told Lauren not to tell anyone that they were going to hang out, and she replied in a text that, well, we're just hanging out, right? Nothing inappropriate, which contradicted Cody's claim that they had consensual um, contact. Yeah, she was like, yeah, I'll hang out with you, but sure. I don't want to do anything other than hang out. Um, they may have had a consensual encounter, but none of it actually explains how Lauren died and ended up being left on a lonely logging road. Um, Cody once again told the police another story, and it would turn out that he told a lot of stories. 
This time, though, he said that they drove down the road where her body was found. Lauren suddenly became agitated. He claims that she was all worked up and that she started hitting herself with a wrench that was in his truck and then stabbed herself with a knife uh, in an attempt to take her own life. The hell are you trying to sell to me, boy? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that is not right. Um, Cody said that after hitting herself, Lauren got out of his truck and disappeared from his view, and he found her laying on her stomach with a knife next to her. She was still alive, but appeared to be dying, so he claimed that he struck her twice in the head with the wrench to put her out of her misery. What a nice guy. He's, she's not a fucking horse. You don't put her down if she's injured you call the police mm. and not that that's even near being believable but like what imagine being like i okay listen i know this looks super bad but i'm not actually the one who killed her she hit herself over the head with what was it a wrench yeah and wrench. then just just start stabbing herself and i just watched her as she did this thinking whoa crazy yeah. no that and is she crazy. jumped out of my truck and ran away and had her pants get down you That's know? why, like, I would really like to know where were you raised, who raised you, <laughs> and the hell did you go through in your life to think that that is a lie that anybody would believe? Okay. And he, I mean, he just left her body there. The discovery of Lauren's body opened up a whole other investigation that no one saw coming. Um, did he work there or something? Like, where? Down that road? No. No, he just drove around, found yeah. a spot. They were just driving around there. Well, booze cruising. I think that he, I mean, my opinion is he probably tried to advance himself on her and she might have refused and he got mad and murdered her. Beat her. How old was she? 15. Oh my God. Yeah. While Cody was in custody, investigators started looking closely at his apartment and while they were there, they found a pickaxe, um, which wasn't too surprising. But when the pickaxe was tested for DNA evidence, it came back that it had traces of human blood on it. And not only that, but the blood DNA also had a match, though not to Lauren, Cynthia's. Wow. Um, police said that Cynthia was involved in drugs and prostitution, but uh, why would Cynthia's DNA end up on a pickaxe at Cody's apartment? Yeah. The explanation came later because it wasn't the only piece of DNA evidence that investigators found. Obviously, after discovering the pickaxe, the police wanted it to be extremely thorough with everything else in Cody's apartment. So after testing the shirts, shorts, bedsheets, comforter, and even another axe, they found more DNA. This DNA was matched to another person entirely, Natasha. A young woman, obviously, like we talked about before, she went missing in 2010, but her body had never been found. And now that her DNA was discovered at Cody's apartment, police were confident um, that the same fate that Lauren um, suffered, Natasha did as well, and as well as Cynthia. That's not all, though. Like If you thought that all of that was crazy enough, just wait, uh, because when they were running Cody's DNA. The police database investigators found um, semen sample collected from a body that wasn't Cynthia's or Lauren's. Cody's DNA was found on the body of 35-year-old Jill that we talked about first. At the beginning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had all suffered blunt force trauma to their heads as well as other wounds. All except for Lauren were characterized in the news as drug users and sex workers. Uh, Cody was now connected to the deaths of four different young women within the last two years. 
and nothing about him would make you think he was the kind of person to do something like that, at least from the outside looking in. His childhood had been typical. Growing up, Cody got along with his parents and siblings. He had worked in a sawmill run by his grandfather. His great uncle said that Cody had an active social life. He played hockey. He liked hunting and fishing. He worked as a mechanic at a Ford dealership. And as the news broke, Cody became known as the country boy killer for the comments that he made when he was first pulled over. So a characteristic of a psychopath is the ability to blend in to normal society. The psychopath can be popular and charming and well-liked by others. They may have a stable employment and appear to have relationships with family and friends. However, this is all an act. A true psychopath can't form any emotional attachments to other people, but they are very good at pretending. Another trait of a psychopath is pathological lying, which is seen in this case with Cody changing a story multiple times um, when it relates to each attack. Um, they're also promiscuous. They have lack of remorse and lack of empathy. These are additional psychopathic traits. And Cody was charged with the first degree murder for all four women in the case, went to trial, and throughout he remained passive, never showing any signs of emotion. And it was in court that the rest of Cody's stories came out that he was a liar. Cody should be found guilty of second degree murder, not first um, this was because Cody freely admitted that he was involved in the deaths of the three women, but he stopped his story about Lauren claiming that she went flying off the handle that night and that she had been the one to take her own life while in his truck. Failing to accept responsibility for one of the actions is another psychopath trait. So for the other three, Cody argued that he wasn't the one who did the actual killing. It instead, he said, was a drug dealer and two other accomplices who killed each of the women on different occasions, but he refused to name them because he was afraid of retribution if he did. Yeah, and even when the judge threatened that he would be held in contempt of court if he didn't say who the other men were, Cody refused. Apparently, he didn't want to be labeled as a rat while in prison for revealing the names. <sighs> it was just not in the cards. And there was no legal obligation to snitch on your accomplices. <laughs> I think that the fact that he was 19 when he first killed is pretty crazy. Like, wow. So Cody still told the court a few more tall tales and why he said that after a party, Jill had stayed to hang out at his apartment with a few other people. He said that they were in another room and an unnamed person told him that Jill had to be killed because she owed a lot of money. Cody, who said he tried cocaine for the first time that night, basically said that all he did was hand a pipe from the toolbox to this other person and then simply watch this other person hit Jill in the head with it and then choke her to death. Cody said that was the only involvement was breaking her cell phone and carrying her body with this other person in his truck and dumping her body as if it was just a perfectly normal evening and all he did was supply the murder weapon watch the murder help dispose of the body and the other evidence it was nothing big um also he cleaned his apartment um to get rid of blood he cleaned it yeah mm. obviously not well enough but um so the next day cody went and had thanksgiving dinner with his family and yeah it all just sounds like a regular weekend right regular special weekend Thanksgiving he's thankful or no what well I mean the same thing pretty much exactly happened the following year with Cynthia 
um, same thing. So he says all he did was supply the other unnamed person with the murder weapon, watched Cynthia be murdered, and then help dispose of her body so that he could clean his apartment, um, but still will not name the other person. And where is he right now in the story? Prison. Correct. So why are we talking about Thanksgiving for? Because this is like the next day after that murder was Thanksgiving and he just went as if nothing was happening. Like nothing happened. He didn't just kill or help dispose of a body or watch a murder. He just went for Thanksgiving with his family and everything was great. Yeah, no, he sounds like a true psychopath or something. Like what the hell? Did his family ever say anything or anything like that? No, nothing's ever. And I mean, it's Canadian, so we don't get the same kind of coverage as the Americans do. Cody's got like one interview um, that's posted on YouTube and it's like he wouldn't talk to police really. So it's not even a... Which is probably why there's not that many interviews. It's like, Mm -hmm. why talk to the guy if you're not going to talk? Yeah. So Cody Lijabakov was officially found guilty on four counts of first-degree murder. Cody was only 19 when he killed for the first time in British Columbia, and your first murder carries a mandatory sentence of life without the eligibility of parole for 25 years. Cody's sentences will be served concurrently, so that means that he will serve one 25-year life term before he comes up for parole. Instead of, like I said before, judges have the... Um, ability to make them serve consecutive sentences which would have been 100 years before he comes up for parole which would be more fair fitting for his crime for this crime but instead he's serving it concurrently meaning he could get out in 25 years that's right the parole officers or whatever however it works here he could so being that he was convicted with four counts of first degree murder Um, He is one of Canada's youngest serial killers. And from everything that I read and from what I can find, I believe he is serving out his life sentence in a medium security prison in Ontario. So all the way across the country. Do we have any maximum security prisons? Yeah, Edmonton Max is maximum. No way. There's maximum security, at least one per province. Um, There's also one in BC in Victoria. Wow. So we will probably bring this guy's name up again when we cover the Highway of Tears case, but I think it's safe to close the book on this case. Honestly, I hope that it's not fully closed, and I hope that one day, you know, he does get that need to talk. Hmm. And if that does happen, we'll open the book back up, and we will update you here on True Crime Story Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and share with your friends. If you don't mind giving us a five-star rating, it will help our show grow. You can also find us on Facebook at True Crime Story Podcast, where the discussion can continue. You can find us on YouTube with our handle, True Crime Story Podcast. If you wish to contact us, you may do so at truecrimestorypod at gmail.com. I'm Bree. And I'm Char. And we'll see you on the next chapter. Bye. Bye!